The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepker. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. First, an update on a previous story that we covered. <laughs> this is the point where I sound like that I'm involved in a phone-in. But uh, a story that we talked about earlier on the programme um, earlier this week was to do with the controversy around the building of a new Chinese embassy in London. We told you a decision was coming and a decision has happened. Uh, and it's what we expected. No new Chinese embassy. It's called journalism and continuity. Um, look, I think it's a really interesting story and it comes at a very tricky time for the Prime Minister in terms of, you know, the hawks doves, the sort of pro-China, anti-China conservatives. Um, despite buying the old Royal Mint, which is by Tower, the Tower of London, for £255 million, uh, it, Tower Hamlets has now rejected again, as far as I can make out, all of the various planning decisions has now finally, finally rejected China's proposal to build what would have been its biggest European embassy. Yun, um, this could be quite a problem diplomatically. You've already seen uh, the uh, Chinese uh, embassy in London sort of talking about it, but nothing much from the PM. Yeah, China's accused the government of failing to meet its diplomatic obligations. You could just kind of imagine these, these, these top Chinese officials sitting around in bafflement that Tower Hamlets Council, which is not an enormous player on the world stage is it Tower Hamlet's <laughs> councils blocked their plans for this massive new embassy in East, in East London I mean the good people of Tower Hamlet's I'm sure won't thank you for under, underestimating their international influence but look <laughs> this is this is a local issue that has national and international ramifications yeah. it's an interesting foreign policy question uh, it, that factors into at a time as we're saying that relations with China are very much in flux yeah absolutely um, I think it will be um, one to watch I mean it did it did cause a lot of controversy within um, Tower Hamlets, the councillors, you know, the original few decisions were really heated. The sessions apparently went late into the night. There's been graffiti in the local area. So, yes, it's been very sort of hotly contested. So, yeah, I think it is a story we should continue, continue thinking about. Can I bring us to a much more mundane story that Go caught on. my eye, though, which is about young people having to live at home for longer because of the housing crisis. Um, 51% of people in England and Wales uh, opted to live with their parents uh, when aged between 20 and 24, uh, according to new data. That's up seven points. On Half 10, of youngsters you? staying home. Yeah, but when you say, when you say opted to... Yes, indeed. Yeah, for, you for do wonder how many of them. Some, some of them may, of course, like to stay with home comforts, but uh, yeah, you wonder if some of them would rather be on their own. No, definitely. Uh, Zoopla apparently separately has talked about how forty-two percent of people aged eighteen to thirty-nine yeah. have given up buying a home altogether. Thirty-nine. I mean, it's not it's not terribly surprising when you look at things like how much mortgage rates are at, and also the general 
sentiment in the housing market, which we've talked about many times on this programme as well. The latest figures from Rickside today showing again buyer sentiment where it was at the, the worst point in the pandemic. Yeah, I would add one caveat though, because remember this census was done during the pandemic. This is 2021. This is this rather odd census. So I think, you know, some young people will have gone home during the pandemic. So mm. I think that might have skewed the figures a little bit. Okay, yes. Um, you are uh, our census watcher. <laughs> um, no, and they're, they're really revealing usually. Uh, but one of the other issues is um, that whilst uh, British youngsters might be staying at home, uh, attracting people to post-Brexit Britain, the global talent route has not been terribly successful. Yeah, this is a fast-track uh, visa route for prize-winning researchers, which the government trumpeted as uh, bringing global talent to Britain. And it attracted just three applicants since it launched two years ago. I remember that. It was really recently. I mean, it was meant to be this idea that, you know, Nobel uh, Prize winning uh, individuals would would flock to our shores. But yeah, it doesn't seem to have happened. Yeah, very interesting uh, numbers uh, obtained by the the publication Research Professional News via Freedom of Information request as well. Um, Only one approved in 2023, two applications granting the visa in 2022. There are definitely not going to be numbers the government's going to be trumpeting in terms of an attraction of talent. And also... uh, the, this news organisation, I, I don't have never heard of it before Research Professional News. Um, I just think that it's very interesting that after so many years of a Conservative government, we're now at the stage where FOIs are being deployed, you know, for all sorts of issues. You know, this is the latest one. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, turning to another subject that caught our eye today, and this is a report in the Telegraph newspaper that the Prime Minister is facing calls from up to a third of the Cabinet to put leaving the European Convention on Human Rights at the heart of his party's election campaign. Now, we've heard rumblings about this from the right of the Tory party before, but this report suggests there's actually growing support for the move at a Cabinet level. So we wanted to take a bit of a step back from the political wrangling over this and dig into what being signed up to this Human Rights Treaty actually means. And we've got our European legal reporter, Stephanie Bodoni, with us for more on that story. Stephanie, great to have you on the show. Can we start, please, with the very basics on this? Who is signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights? What sort of rights are contained in it? And how did it come about? Well, yeah, so there's about 46 member states uh, to the European Convention on Human Rights. And every country in Europe, so including the UK, is part of it. Um, We don't have Belarus and Russia, but we can come to that a bit later, maybe. So the European Convention on Human Rights is an international treaty that aims to protect human rights and political freedoms, and it came into force in 1953. It's governed by the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, whose rulings are binding on its member states, and that's obviously a bit of an issue. Um, The convention was established shortly after the end of the World World War II um, to promote human rights and freedom and democracy. Um, in the light of the discussions now going on in the, UK, in the UK, it's a bit funny to think that one of the convention's driving forces was actually Winston Churchill, and the UK was the first nation to uh, ratify the convention. Yeah, that is certainly a very interesting fact to point out. Um, Stephanie, I, I just want to kind of relive with you the um, one of the things that has me often screaming at the radio and television as someone who studied law many hundreds of years ago, um, that the European Convention on Human Rights, sorry, the European Court on Human Rights is not an EU legal institution or anything to do with the EU. In fact, it's entirely separate, as you've explained there, that it's to do with the European Convention on Human Rights. And when we often hear references to the European Court, uh, people are often referring to the European Court of Justice, which is something completely 
completely different altogether. Just tell us some of the key rights which are contained within the, the, the convention. I think for, for what's happening now in, in the UK, one of the, the main um, flashpoints really is uh, what the convention says about migration. And it basically um, protects the rights of everyone who um, is part of its uh, the, the member states that, are, that have signed up to the convention, regardless of which country they're citizen of. So its rules on migration, for instance, make it illegal to turn away an individual um, if it puts them at risk of torture or other inhuman or degrading treatment. And this has obviously irked, um, especially those politicians who campaigned for Brexit and wanted to take back control from the EU, um, which they said also meant having complete judicial sovereignty. And they want the UK courts to have the final say. Um, but do they have the final say? I know that you use the word binding, um, that the, the uh, European Court of Human Rights decisions are binding. But actually, how are they enforced? You know, how, uh, how much sway do they have over, as you say, you know, UK sovereignty and UK court decisions? Well, there's actually a good example that's very, very fresh, and that is an injunction from the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, so the, the court that enforces the convention, uh, the convention's rules, um, in 2022. Um, and it prevented this, this uh, order and injunction prevented the UK from relocating some asylum seekers to Rwanda, which was part of a controversial policy um, by former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Johnson that was popular among conservative MPs. And um, this is now stuck in the UK courts. So you have the UK Court of Appeal, which in June this year backed the European Court's ruling. And how this will play out now depends on whether the government um, decides to appeal uh, this uh, UK Court ruling all the way to the Supreme Court. And of course, a negative outcome for the government here could make calls to leave the European Convention grow even louder. Well, well, I think that's the key point here, is the final decision on this comes from the Supreme Court in the UK. And while the, the rulings and the decisions, that, that interim order that you're talking about from the, the European Court of Human Rights is a specific mechanism which allows a stay on a deportation while it processes through the courts. But ultimately, there are lots of European Court of Human Rights rulings that aren't obeyed by signatories to the Convention. Yes, um, there are examples of that. And of course, serious and repeated non-compliance um, could potentially result in, uh, in, a, in a country's expulsion from this council. So, so they would no longer be part of the convention. Um, though this is still very uncharted territory, it hasn't actually happened. Um, one example potentially um, is Russia. Uh, Russia has uh, been uh, a repeated subject of various rulings from the European Court of uh, Human Rights and has not necessarily always uh, abided by um, the rulings. But Russia um, decided um, not very long ago to quit um, the convention. And um, this was following um, an announcement by the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, in March 2022, so shortly, shortly after the invasion of Russia, uh, of Ukraine. And he announced that his country was now leaving the European Court of Human Rights. And um, the same day, the Council of Europe's Parliamentary Assembly issued a unanimous opinion to expel Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. So there is 
obviously a bit more uh, substance and background to this decision um, that made this a bit more of an urgent matter. Quitting the convention for the UK could obviously further undermine the UK's relations with Europe, um, but it could also affect the UK's post-Brexit trade deal with the EU. There are some legal experts who say that um, there is this trade and cooperation agreement from 2020, which has an explicit clause requiring then when um, requiring that when policing the agreement, both sides ensure to respect uh, fundamental rights, including those highlighted in the convention. So there's various layers to, um, to what could happen uh, if the UK leaves um, the convention. And I think Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's reluctance so far uh, is obviously largely related to potential repercussions to, this could all have. Um, also, again, because it is uncharted territory, it hasn't really happened uh, very much. Uh, the only reason so far, apart from Russia, uh, for countries to quit the treaty uh, have been coups and wars. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point that you make it that because the Convention on Human Rights is mentioned in the political declaration attached to the withdrawal agreement from the EU as well, that that is something that's sort of woven into the legal framework of the e mm. EU's future relationship with the UK. It's also something that's quite central to the reference to the Good Friday Agreement as well in Northern Ireland. So there, there are other layers to this beyond necessarily the, the rulings of the Court of Human Rights on, on migration issues, Ewan. Stephanie, you, you mentioned that it's only been wars and coups which have seen countries leave the convention how how much of a blow would it be for the uk to leave how, how controversial would it be i mean that's 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 to be seen again i mean as i said it could have um major repercussions on its diplomatic relations with europe but also don't forget it's an international treaty so it's not just europe that is part of it there's some i mean european countries there's some other uh countries that are part of it. I think it's a, it, it, that's more of a political question as to mm. how um, it could reflect on, on the UK as a country that ho has already created some diplomatic havoc uh, with Brexit. Um, so what repercussions it could have, I think that's, that's a good question for a lot of uh, legal academics out there who uh, I'm sure um, are analysing this, uh, you know, with a lot yes. of passion. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us and giving us that background to the European Convention and Court of Human Rights. That's our European legal reporter, Stephanie Bodoni. Yeah, really interesting to get a bit of insight into one of those hot political issues which gets bounded about so much, but you don't really know much about the substance of it until you hear from a legal expert like Stephanie. So yeah, really interesting insight. And then I also like that she quite entertained my reliving my trauma of law school days <laughs> of uh, trying to distinguish between which European courts people are referring to and how they're parts of different legal systems as well. And, and look, I mean, I think there's a really interesting point that she makes about how this step by the UK is also a, sort of a symbol as to how the UK views itself in the world post-Brexit. She mentioned the complications with the mention of the European Court Convention on Human Rights in the withdrawal agreement and the post-Brexit Brexit trade agreements with the EU. That's actually a, a committed. Now, it's in the political declaration, so there's some nuance around that as well, about it's whether or not it's actually part of the legally enforceable agreements. But it is mentioned in, as I said, the Good Friday Agreement from Northern Ireland, and that's another uh, complication 
education that adds into this as well. It's not as simple as just saying we don't want to be part of this from one day to the next. First of all, it's peppered through our legal precedent and legal history for as long as the UK has been a member of it and the court has been issuing rulings because they do have persuasive powers in British Mm. courts, even if they're not necessarily things that are immediately implemented, as Stephanie explained to us there as well. Uh, But it's something that is also tied into our international agreements. It is, but I think that this whole argument is arising because the five priorities that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak put forward, which included, you know, major steps like trying to grow the economy, halve inflation, cut NHS waiting lists. But the fifth one, of course, was stopping the boats, dealing with migration. And I think actually... um, a lot of the digest of those um, major points sort of left the whole migration issue to one side, didn't think that it was that much of a commitment. But of course, now I think it's emerging as a much bigger part of this Conservative administration than perhaps many people had expected. And that's why, you know, that's why the cabinet, um, it seems, are or part of the cabinet are so keen to have the prime minister, you know, pull the UK out of this convention if it gets in the way of that goal of sort of as conservatives would see it protecting the borders and limiting the number of migrants that come to the UK. Yeah, I think it's turning into certainly the trickiest of the five pledges and it does seem that trickiest inflation I mean. still not not on a lock yet. Well, it isn't, but it is going in the, right, going direction, in the right direction. This yeah. doesn't really seem to be going in the right direction and it does seem if we're to believe the news that the Prime Minister is devoting a lot of time to thinking about this Mm. and anything which like the the ECHR which gets in the way of this policy and it is getting in the way of the Rwanda part of this policy which was a which was a key way the government wanted to tackle this issue well it's got to be under threat surely so that's why it's being uh, it's a current issue. Well, let's turn perhaps away from subjects that the government doesn't want to focus on too much, just one that they definitely do want to talk about a lot, and that is artificial intelligence. The much-heralded AI safety summit that Rishi Sunak and the government are planning to hold this November. The UK aiming to position itself as a leader on AI by hosting this summit on how to regulate this emerging technology. The sector already contributes £3.7 billion to the UK economy and employs 50,000 people here. We've been speaking to Matt Clifford about this. He He's the CEO of Entrepreneur First and has been named as one of Rishi Sunak's two AI czars who will help plan the summit. He's been speaking to myself and Francine Lacqua about Britain's goals for the new technology. I think the way to think about this is that, um, you know, AI represents probably the biggest opportunity of any technology of our lifetime, but but, but clearly there are big risks. And so the, the purpose of this summit is to sort of try and create a shared understanding of those risks and a platform for global cooperation on thinking about how to mitigate them. And absolutely, I think that is an achievable ambition with what we're setting out to do here. Matt, whose job is, is, is it to do that? If you look at the composition of governments, frankly, and cabinets uh, across the world, it can be the UK, it can be France, Italy, China. Like They don't really have a minister of AI. And everyone's freaked out by some of the stories that we heard about of you know what they do to, to privacy going forward. So is it a bit too soon to start talking about it now when there's no real infrastructure for it? Well, I think this comes to, you know, kind of how you frame the summit in your introduction, which is absolutely right, which is that this is going to require collaboration across countries, industry and other experts. And so although, you know, it is, I I think, very early in the development of AI, you know, when you zoom out, it's clear that already uh, the opportunities and risks are are real and people are experiencing those uh, already. And so I don't think it is too soon. I think this is this is exactly the time to start to try to pull together a framework for how we think about getting the benefits of AI and, and mitigating some of those risks. 
Can the UK really take a leadership role on this? I mean, that's the ambition of the government, but is the country actually well-placed to do so outside of the European Union and realistically not a hub for some of the biggest global tech companies? Well, I think it's uh, it's been pretty impressive if you look at the last 10 years to see just what a leader in AI the UK already is. I mean, let's remember the company that really kick-started the modern era of AI, DeepMind, uh, was founded in the UK, still headquartered in the UK, now Google DeepMind. Um, and you know, I think that that has led to and you know benefited from the enormous talent base that we yeah. have here in the UK around AI. But, but not only that, I think you know if you look at what the UK government has done over the last year, it's pretty clear that we have been at the forefront of this wave. Things like the Foundation Models Task Force that was announced earlier in the year, the single biggest commitment to AI safety of any government in the world. I think this just shows that uh, by being ahead of the curve uh, in the thinking on this, there's a real opportunity to to take that global leadership role and work with our partners uh, to to kind of come up with these frameworks that we need. Matt, I don't want to rain on your parade, and I'm a huge fan of DeepMind, and certainly the founder, who was one of the first ones to really understand this. But then you have OpenAI, and U.S. firms, as often in the tech space, have taken a, leap, a huge leap forward. I mean, they make the semiconductors, they make some of the you know, Generation 4. They're at the forefront. So really, what claim does the U.K. have? Y- yes, in certain parts, we're okay, but actually, we're, we're not really the most advanced. I think the the thing about this technology is that it's inherently global. No one country is going to be able to shape the future of AI, and it's going to be necessary, and I think all our international partners agree on this, uh, to have an international perspective. So, you know, it's certainly true that there are many uh, pioneering AI firms outside the UK, but it's interesting, for example, that OpenAI, which you mentioned, Anthropic, one of the other leaders, when they chose to open their first international office outside the US, that was in the UK. And so I think the UK is well positioned to, to lead a conversation here. But to be really clear, the the goal of this summit is not to say that the UK has the right solution, which it wants to the rest of the world to adopt, is to provide a platform for the conversation about what needs to be global and international and where will domestic regulation be enough. Part of the hints we've gotten from tech companies, though, is that, you know, they'll be advocating for self-regulation in some of these areas. How do you counter that argument or is that an argument that you think should be countered? Well, I, I would sort of look at the uh, voluntary measures that the uh, US announced uh, a few weeks ago, uh, anchored by seven of the leading AI firms, and say, I think that's sort of set the tone for the sorts of uh, commitments that, that, that these companies are willing to make. And then the question really is, and this is one of the things that we need to look at in the in the months and, and, and years ahead, is how do we think about which of those voluntary commitments are sufficient and where will we need uh, those to be underpinned by, by regulation? And so, yeah, for sure, right now one of the big challenges is as i said earlier this is a very early technology in its development there's lots still to to figure out and so you know i think if you see the uk government white paper that came out earlier this year it's very clear that we want to take a pro innovation approach you know we don't want to this is not a technology that we're trying to clamp down or shut down uh but but equally i think having a shared understanding of the risks which is one of the main goals for the summit mm-hmm. is the best way to sort of help us start to navigate these questions I mean, I know it's countries really that are unfriendly that could take advantage of this and weaponize AI. I don't know how much understanding we have of how they're, you know, using the data and advancing AI. And is actually, you know, is, what's the scary bit of AI that we need to regulate? And if you don't have them present at the table at your summit, can you really figure out what they're doing? 
Well, there's, there's a range of risks that AI introduces. Uh, some of them are about deliberate misuse, the kind I think that you're alluding to, and some are about accidental misuse. You know, these are very powerful systems um, that we don't fully understand. It was very interesting, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the CEO of one of the leading firms, Anthropic, uh, gave testimony in the US Senate about some of the ways that um, the technology that they've already built exacerbates some conventional risks, like uh, bioweapons risk, for example. So I, th I think like there is a very broad range of risks, but it, it doesn't come from a single source, nor does it come from necessarily all conventional actors. I think you know that's one of the reasons uh, for the AI Safety Summit, is to really start to try and build a shared global consensus on where these risks come from, and start to think about some of the ways we can mitigate that. What role will China have in this summit? Well, it's sort of too early to uh, speculate about invitees for the summit. As you'll know, you know, it's routine that uh, we don't get into that uh, with summits of this kind. But, you know, I think the UK government's position on China is very clear. If you go back to the integrated review refresh of last year, and, you know, there are obviously uh, challenges and risks in that relationship. Equally, I think we've also been clear that it's very important that on issues of uh, where, whether a genuinely global risk that we engage, you know, with our partners to, to work out how to work with, with Beijing on these things. And, uh, Helpful to have them, would it be helpful to have them there? Would you be pushing for there to be significant China participation? Again, I'm not going to I'm not going to speculate on invites at this stage, but I think I would say that it's very clear that in any global technology where uh, you have both global risks uh, and global consequences, it's going to be important to take a you know a genuinely international perspective. So that was Matt Clifford, the CEO of Entrepreneur First and one of the government's Sherpas in putting this AI summit together, speaking to myself and Francine Lacqua a little bit earlier as well. Mm. Look, um, I mean, inadvertently, we've ended up circling back to China at both the start and the end of yes. this programme, um, which is interesting. But I, I mean, I suppose what I took away from that conversation is, is the challenges seem enormous. The buy-in from the people that come to the summit is going to be very important. And yet mm. there seems to be still an awful lot of detail left to be worked out about what it will address and who'll be there. Yeah. And my big question for artificial intelligence is we think it might add to productivity and, you know, make us uh, all produce more stuff per hour, countries produce. But who's going to benefit from that? Is that going to mean standards of living go up in the UK? I think that's a big, big question for AI now. The de debate over self-regulation also is going to go on for a long time. Already we've seen the industry positioning itself as trying to, you know, the voluntary code that Matt Clifford was just talking mm. about there in the US as well. That's going to be a subject that's going to be controversial as well. Talking productivity, I have a fun story from the terminal this morning. H hybrid work pushes happy hour to earlier in the week. Are you, you buying? Patterns, mm? that, are you buying? Is that what's happening now? <laughs> 31st, Thursday, 11, 11 a.m. New working <laughs> patterns have rendered Friday happy hours obsolete, apparently, leading restaurants and bars in London and New York to adjust their marketing strategies. I've heard that Thursday was the new Friday in many offices, but according to the story, many venues are finding that Tuesday is the new Friday. Any day is the new Friday to me. <laughs> Lovely stuff. But I think that's a very nice way to end today's programme on, on an optimistic, hopeful and sociable thoughts. <laughs> if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe to us. Give us five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Jack Ryan, and our audio engineers were Marufal Hussain and Max Green. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepgett. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.